Welcome to the South Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Good morning, friends. How are you doing today? Still going. My name's Alex, I'm one of the pastors here. If you're visiting, we're so glad that you are. We're in a second week in a series of anxi- about anxiety as a series of anxiety. Yes, I'm gonna preach for about an hour and a half and if you have anxiety now, I'm not surprised. Um, we're, we're in this two weeks, uh, three week series. Man, I'm gonna start again. Uh, we're in a series where we're gonna talk about anxiety, past, present, and future. It's a series that we called Overwhelmed. It recognizes that the life actually just beats you up at times. It just feels heavy and there are so many things uh, perhaps to be concerned about. One of the new things we're trying out during this series is Aaron and I do a podcast together uh, every week and we'd love to hear questions. If, if you hear something that you're like, you would say, ah, this is, there's something else to, that I'd like to explore with that. Perhaps you would say, I just think Alex is wrong about that. Perhaps you're not even sure Jesus is right about that. We're, we're gonna open this up to all sorts of questions and so take down the number and as I'm going, just drop us a text and we'll try and get back to some of those questions uh, later in the week. A- anxiety seems like it is today's issue. Not that it hasn't always been around, but it is now so notable in the world around us. Some statistics. Anxiety affects 20 to 30 percent of Americans. I expected when I got to Colorado for this to be an anxiety-free place. There's 300 days of sunshine and there are mountain views, and yet anxiety is high in Colorado. Imagine what it would be like if we didn't get to look at the Rocky Mountains every week. But, But it's there and it's everywhere. Anxiety is the number one mental health struggle for women and and the second for men. A teenager today averages the same level of anxiety as a psychiatric patient in the 1950s. Wow. And America is comfortably the most anxious nation. So recognizing some of that within us, we read this passage last week, a passage that seems to be full of good news, but, but has some complexity to it. Rejoice In the Lord always, says a man named Paul around 2,000 years ago. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, that, that thing I would suggest we all want, really, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. There's so much beauty in that passage, and yet maybe there's also some wrestling as as to whether that's working for everyone right now. Maybe you've tried some of that, and so we're going to delve a little deeper into that. If you'd like to follow along in a paper version of the Bible or on your phone or iPad, then you can turn to Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. Matthew is one of the biographers of Jesus' life. We're going to spend some time there, and then you should have two cards on your chair and a pen lurking somewhere around. You will need both those cards and a pen that works. And we believe around 78% of our pens work that are behind the chairs. So if you don't have one that works, we can get you a a different pen. But hold on to those. We're going to come back to them in uh, a few minutes. 
It seems that when you read across the broad spectrum of biblical writers, it seems like God expects us as human beings to spend most of our time in the present, in this moment. And yet there's this past that kind of has maybe some things that haunt us from back way before, maybe some things that were done to us, maybe some things that we've done that are hard to let go of. Maybe there's moments in our present that, that we, we are triggered by something from, from maybe years ago. Maybe it's just one word or one person that really can catch us off guard. And then there is the future, this thing that we are moving towards. The present is a gift in the words of Bill Keane. Yesterday's the past, tomorrow's the future, but today's a gift. And that's why it's called the present. And yet, there's something about human beings. It seems out of all species, we are uniquely wired to think about the future. We're uniquely wired to think and to dream and to plan and perhaps to worry about the future. Human beings are created to dream about the future. In our early story in this book, Genesis in the Bible, the relationship between God and man is one of the world is messy outside of this garden. Go and explore it and care for it, tend it, make something of it. Do that in partnership with me. How do you do that without dreaming about what something might look like? You and I are made to dream about the future in partnership with God. Maybe some of you would call yourself a, a futurist. You talk about the future like it's today. You see all of the possibilities out there. So we're uniquely wired for that. Here's some of the tension. Human beings are terrible at predicting the future. Just terrible. I don't even mean in the, the kind of like spooky prediction sense. In, when I was growing up in, in England, there was a lottery and, and every week there would be someone, a lady before the lottery called Mystic Meg, and she would predict who was going to win. And it would usually go something like this. I predict that this week someone from the north of England will win a lot of money. And, uh, and it was always so broad, it could never really be wrong. Like the north could suddenly stretch down to London or something. It's just how far south do you have to go before it's not north anymore? I'm not even talking about that. I'm just talking about, about where society is going in general. How many of you guys, raise your hands, used this service this week? That's a good chunk. I, I can't resist. I, I always want to shop local, and then I'm like, but I want it tomorrow. So I just, I, I just go back to, to Amazon, to the big dog time and time again. And yet, in 1966, Time magazine said this, remote shopping, while entirely feasible, will flop because women... Blaming women. This is, this is so out of touch with today. Like to get out of the house, like to handle merchandise, like to be able to change their minds. There should be no Amazon, according to Time magazine. How about this one? How many of you enjoy big screen TVs? If you have this TV in your house, just invite me for the Super Bowl. I'm like, this, this, is, a, this is a monster. But... In 1967, Daryl Zanuck, television won't be able to hold on to any market it captures after the first six months. People will soon get tired of staring at a plywood box every night. Just didn't predict OLED. He was just locked in the plywood model. He just, it's, yeah, it shouldn't have happened. The all-consuming iPhone, the thing that induces anxiety when you put it down for five minutes, you might have missed something that's going on. William Orton, president of Western Union in 1876, this telephone has too many shortcomings to be seriously considered as a means of communication. 
the Apple Store, a place that maybe you've spent more dollars than you want to admit. Every time we go on a family trip, we go to the airport, I have to pull about five iPads and tablets or iMacs out of my bag, and it takes forever. According to one person, I think there is a world market for maybe five computers. I have a house market for five computers, let alone a world market. It's just, I mean, I mean they're everywhere, and, and clearly Thomas Watson missed this one. Steve Chen, one of the founders of YouTube, I don't know if it's going to work. Uh, there just aren't that many videos I want to watch. Now there's 800 million or something like that. They're everywhere, but he wasn't, even he, the creator, wasn't sure it was going to work. Clifford Stroll said, the truth is no online database will replace your daily newspaper. You should all still be buying paper copies in the 50s, the head of the communist government in Russia predicted the demise of the United States was an inevitability. The American dream didn't work and predicted it would be divided amongst multiple world powers in the future. They got Alaska back, according to him. Steve Jobs predicted that the, the Segway would be to walking what the car was to the horse and carriage. We get it spectacularly wrong, and even when we're asked, we don't actually have much imagination outside of our own fields. In one book of predictions, a sports writer who loved fishing was asked, tell us what will happen in the next 50 years, and he said this, someone will catch a 3,000-pound fish with a rod from the shore. When asked to dream about all the possibilities of the future, anything that could happen, a sports rider who loved fishing could only imagine a really big fish. That was the limit of what he could do. We are bad at predicting the future. And maybe more importantly, we are bad at predicting our own future. We're bad at predicting where our life might go, where the different currents of chance and fate might take us. We just don't do that well. The writer Meg Ray said this, most of our catastrophes exist in the future. I'm always amazed by my mind's ability to go into all sorts of different scenarios to predict unfailing success for myself or absolute disaster for myself. And one thing can build on another. I can open a newspaper and I can look at the economy and say, huh, kind of taking a downturn. What happens if I lose my job? I've jumped a long way already. What happens if I no longer have a job? What happens if then I can't afford braces for my kid? She has crooked teeth in the land of straight teeth. She'll never find anyone that will love her or accept her and she'll never get married and I'll never have grandkids and I'll just be alone. And, and I can jump and jump and jump and jump from one thing to another. Our minds seem to do that so easily and so quickly. No wonder we find ourselves to be somewhat anxious. We can fill our imagined futures with continual threats of impending doom. It's a cycle you might have felt, even when you're trying to be good and, and care for yourself. There's, I'm an anxious mess, to therapy and self-care to help deal with that, to, hey, I'm feeling pretty good, to wait, too good suspiciously good to inevitably something terrible is going to happen any minute now. When I read Meg Ray's quote, I thought, well, of course catastrophes are going to be in the future. But, but what she means by that is they're only sometimes in the future. They, they never become past or present because they never actually happen. 
We get to imagine all sorts of different scenarios, something terrible, some impending doom, or perpetual dreams of unending success. We imagine all of the different ways that we could become rich, famous, important. I only found out recently that I knew the word paranoia, the idea that someone is against you, is plotting for your harm. I didn't know that there was also the word pronoia, this idea that there's some mysterious benefactor who's just doing great things for us behind the scene and is going to make sure that we're successful in the future. Perhaps for some of us, that's simply how we see God working, someone who's going to make us rich and going to make us happy. There are all these different elements that might take place, impending doom, unending success. All of them can create anxiety. It's the thing that we don't want to come, and it's the thing we desperately want to come, but but we may not get in the end. Perhaps that's why C.S. Lewis said this, the future is, of all things, the least like eternity. It's the most temporal part of time, for the past is frozen and no longer flows. And the present is lit up with eternal rays. The future remains a mystery to us. I've given you two cards. One is green. One purported in the online advertisement to be red. Um, It's kind of salmon. Um, and, And I picked these because briefly I started trading stocks. And so I came to recognize green is good and red is bad. And I saw so much red, I stopped trading stocks. It was a a wise move. What I want you to do is take a pen. And the first thing I talked about was the sense of impending doom, all of the the negative things that might happen, all of the things that you fear, all of the concerns for the future get ridden on there. And then on the green one, all of the things that you hope for, all of the good, all of the dreams. I've got things on these lists that I'm willing to read you, but I've got things as I probed into my own heart that I don't want to read out loud. I don't want to own, but they're there on paper. There are fears, there are hopes, there is the future and all of the places, the ways that it might develop. And I want you to just spend a few minutes as I'm talking, jotting those down. The future is a mystery and therefore can produce anxiety simply because we're not sure what it looks like, where it will go. And in the midst of that, Paul tells us, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God and the peace of God, that thing we desperately long for, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. But you may say, I'm someone who follows Jesus and I feel like I do that and the peace feels temporary. It doesn't feel like it lasts. I do it in the moment. What what am I supposed to do now? I've tried Philippians 4. Isn't the more advice? What else does the the biblical writer say? And we're going to turn now to Jesus and just see how that compares with what Paul will tell us. So you can open to Matthew chapter 6 verse 25, and I'm going to read it first here, then we're going to go through verse by verse. We're going to try and imbibe this just a little bit. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying... Add a single hour to your life. And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. 
If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear for the pagans run after all these things? And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Jesus, as we wrestle, as we digest your words, help us to understand your heart. We acknowledge that we are often anxious people. God, would you comfort those of us that are afflicted, afflict those of us that are comfortable. Would you transform us? Would you speak to your people? Amen. So a couple of things as we dive into this passage. First, in this series of, on anxiety, just let us recognize and pause for a moment. There are multiple types of anxiety. I don't understand all of them, and I'm certainly not a clinical psychologist. So it might be that some of the conversation these next couple of weeks is a nudge towards you working with someone who's skilled in those areas, who has a bunch more knowledge than I have. And there's even some classes in our group link that would reflect some of those uh, helps that you might receive. The, there's medical anxiety, which sometimes is treated with different uh, things. There's all sorts of anxiety. What I'm trying to do is tap into some of the spiritual advice uh, around that. Jesus begins this passage by saying, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life. The very thing, perhaps, we are most inclined to be concerned about. We have one life on this earth, and of course, it seems somewhat natural to, to worry about it, to be concerned around it. This passage is in a larger chunk of teaching called the Sermon on the Mount. It's a couple of chapters long. It's Jesus' biggest section of teaching. And it begins by saying he took his followers and taught them. By nature of this address, it is designed for people that have chosen to follow Jesus. Now, good and bad from that. If you've decided you're not sure about Jesus, you're still figuring that out, the good news is you're off the hook for some of the really hard things that he might ask us to do. So, so just bear that in mind. That doesn't mean you can't get wisdom from him, but he expressly says, this is, this is what life in my way looks like. If you're keen on following me, serious about following me, this is what it looks like to do that. And he ends that teaching by saying this, my teaching is, is like someone building a house and building it on rock. Other teachings are like building on sand. If you want to follow me, know that you're building on a secure foundation. Jesus is giving us wisdom. And, and perhaps the reason some of us started following him was simply in Jesus, we saw someone who was wiser than we are. We recognize that we're part of the problem. We don't see the world clearly. Jesus does, and so he invites us into following his way. Maybe it was later we started to understand words like redemption and understand what the cross and resurrection meant for us spiritually. But perhaps originally it was just, wow, this guy, he knows what he's talking about. And I find Jesus to be wise and worth following. And so to me, I want to take what he says and imbibe it. And he tells me, do not worry about your life. He uses the same word we looked at last week that Paul uses. It's a complicated word. In Greek, it's merimneo. It means, yes, don't be anxious, but, but also something else as well. It's broader than that. It, it could mean don't be divided into parts or don't be distracted by the wrong 
things. Paul, uh, Jesus uses this, this word seven times in Matthew's gospel, six of them just in this really short pericope. It's over and over again. Merimneo, merimneo, merimneo. Don't follow that pathway. Don't go down that route. Don't worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? And now we get into some of the grid of what he's talking about and we see how quickly it becomes complex because if you take that word merimneo and said it simply means to be anxious, to be concerned about, that means one thing. And if you read it with some of the nuances and say it also means to be distracted, well, that means something else. And we're going to wrestle with just how complex that gets in terms of food and clothing that Jesus mentions. Because we all know, right, there's food, there's having enough. And then there's food having choice. Food is both a necessity on one hand, it's also a luxury on the other hand. Clothing is a necessity on one hand, it's also a luxury on the other hand. And if we read worry, concern, do I have enough? Well, we land over here. And if we read distracted, well, then maybe it nudges us over here, because there's plenty of people that don't have enough to eat. And then there's the other side of the coin. This is a chef who goes by the name Salt Bay, I believe. He does some weird salty thing, and it's become a big deal on the internet. So much so, his restaurants now sell food for incredible amounts of money. Some of his steak is leafed in gold and then cooked. And someone recently took a picture of a receipt that they had from his restaurant, which was in Dubai currency, 615,000 Dubai somethings. Um, and, and that's around $150,000. For one meal, for a group of friends, there is $150,000. And he says underneath, quality is never expensive. The, the, there is food... There is enough, there, are, there is resources or the lack of them, and then there is luxury, there is do I have enough to eat and what kind of clothes can I buy? How much do I get to spend? There is, there is all of those different nuances to this equation. For some people, there is not enough to eat. For some people, there is choice and more choice. I recently read about a fashion designer who sold a T-shirt for $94,000 and another designer who sold paper bags for $290. They sold out. And you wonder how different can one paper bag be from another, but apparently the answer is very. This is a conversation about food and clothing, and it crosses the line between necessity and luxury, they both fall into that category. Let's keep reading. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And we won't spend a ton of time with this verse, but just as a nuance, I'd love to just share what it actually says in Greek is, can any of you add an inch to your height. And as a guy who's about six foot, but has a brother who's six foot three and another brother who's six foot five, I have spent time worrying about adding a single inch to my height. And it didn't work, just in case you were wondering. And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. Jesus says that the things that are best fed 
these birds, and the things that are best clothed, these flowers, they do so by relying solely on God and his provision. So you do the same. Let's keep going. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom and his righteousness and all of these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. To a group of people who are inclined to worry about food and clothing, either having enough or having plenty, lots more abundance, Jesus says, don't worry about those things. What, what does he mean? Or maybe a better question is, well, what does he want us to know? What are we supposed to learn from him? Is he talking about necessity? Is he talking about luxury? Is he talking about both? And what does he mean when he says, just simply rely on me, rely on your heavenly father? Because that then might come with another question, a difficult, hard question to ask in some ways. Because then we might say, is Jesus right is Jesus right? If you read merimneo, this word in that first sense, we read merimneo is a lack of faith. He says God will provide and we're expected to trust. The challenge there is when we talk about necessity, we live in a world where a billion people don't have enough to eat and 700 million people don't have access to clean water and 27,000 people die every day because of a lack of resources, because of a lack of food. So if we believe when we read Jesus here that it's simply they weren't faithful enough, well, that raises a bunch of questions, right? That gets complicated really quick. Because I know people who have seen God miraculously provide in a moment. It's turned up on the doorstep. It's landed there unexpectedly, free of charge, no strings attached. And I also know people to whom that hasn't happened. So if I'm left in a place of saying, well, were they just not faithful? It gets complicated really quick. Reading one of Matthew chapter six would say it's simply a lack of faith. If God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and gone tomorrow, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? This reading of Matthew chapter six simply says, you know that red list that you have in front of you? you you can stop worrying about the red list. It may not look exactly like food and clothing. It's a 21st century list, but but the provision will be there. If you read Matthew chapter one, simply merimneo means don't worry, don't be anxious. The answer is, well, well, you don't have to worry about that anymore. Red's taken care of. Put it to one side. Then there's another reading that merimneo is not so much about worry, it's more distraction. And then we start to nudge into that, that second meaning of the word. We're now talking not about necessity, we're now talking about luxury. And if this is how you read Jesus, well, there's elements to what he says that fit exactly into that understanding of the text. For the pagans run after all these things, he says, and your heavenly father knows that you need them. 
but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. The concept of run after there is to chase diligently, to try and amass, to collect, to pull in possessions. It's no longer looking for enough food to eat. It's now looking for steak covered in gold leaf. It's no longer looking for paper bags that are free or more obnoxiously 10 cents each now. Or it's now looking for paper bags that are $290. It's, it's a different piece of language. Suddenly now, if you read it this way, merimneo is a distraction. It's not, don't worry about the red card, it's stop chasing the green card. All of the things that you're so anxious to amass, stop running after them. They can't give you what you want. One of the things I've noticed about my own sense of anxiety is this. It often comes, in the sense of the future at least, from things that I'm worried might happen, usually a lack of resources, a lack of possessions, a lack of just a lack, or it comes from desperately longing for more of something so I can know that I add up. It tends to come from one of those two directions, and according to Jesus, depending on how we read him, it's one of those two things he's talking about, or perhaps, perhaps it's both. The, the second reading is maybe best highlighted not just from this passage, but from a short story that Jesus told. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. One brother has died and got an inheritance, the other brother has not. In Jewish society, usually what would happen is this, the older brother would get two-thirds, and the younger brother would get one-third, and, and so it could be this. A younger brother has come to Jesus and said, my brother will not give me my rightful inheritance. Tell him to give it to me. And Jesus says, I'm not going to go down that journey with you. Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? And then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in gold leaf steak or $94,000 t-shirts or an abundance of possessions. The ground of a certain man, he tells a story, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. On the verge of one recession, an acquaintance in England said to me, no recession can hurt me anymore. I have stored up enough. And I said, oh, I don't know if I would like to say that, depending on this passage. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then you will get, who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. The message version translates that last passage. That's what happens when you fill your barn with self and not with God. It moves the language of barn away from food, which we have plenty of, and brings everything else into the equation. I am so eager to store barns with things that are on my green list, at least in potentially. That, that I end up getting out of whack with God. The writer Dorothy Bass said this, we delude ourselves into believing that if we can just get everything done, if we can tie up all the loose ends, if we can even once get ahead of the crush, then we will prove our worth and establish ourselves in safety. These distortions drive us into the arms of a false theology. We come to believe that we, not God, are the masters of time. 
We come to believe that our ultimate safety rests on our good management. There is enough, and then there is abundance. There is the temptation to worry, will there be enough for the mortgage this month? There is the temptation to worry about the opposite, to amassing more and more and more. Uh, I would suggest there's two things going on here. The first is that, if we're honest, we fear poverty, and I'm using poverty as this code word for our negative anxieties, for all the bad things, the red list that might take place. We fear poverty because it will believe it, we believe it steals peace. We believe it robs us of the, the, the peace with God that we long for. We, fear, we chase prosperity because we believe it guarantees peace. Only I could have enough, everything would be fine. There'd be no reason to be anxious ever again. Both of them are false. There's a third potential reading that incorporates these first two readings of what Jesus says, and it's this. Reading three, merimneo, this Greek word for worry, anxiety, for distraction, for diversion, causes us to miss the big picture. Causes us to miss the big picture because here's what I would say is true based on Jesus' teaching. True peace comes from presence. It cannot be bought by prosperity. It cannot be stolen by poverty. It cannot be bought by prosperity, cannot be stolen by poverty, simply dependent on God's presence. That and that alone. True peace is simply dependent on God's presence. Read this passage that Steve read for us in our call to worship and note red list, green list. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long, we are considered as sheep to the slaughter. The challenge of reading Jesus only in the first reading is that we forget that he multiple times said to his followers, you'll have trouble uh, on this earth. It won't always be easy. They'll take you, they'll throw you in jail, they'll do all of these sorts of things. There'll be some of the things on that list. Red list, green list. There's a lot of red list there. How about the next slot? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, red list, green list, neither angels nor demons, green list, red list, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Written into a Jewish understanding of the world was this. When you experience the green list, you are blessed. When you experience the red list, you are not blessed. When you get the green list, God is present. When you get the red list, God is not present. And Jesus says that's simply not how it works. That isn't how it works. Green list, present. Red list, present. Doesn't change. Not dependent. Prosperity, present. Poverty, present. Hunger, present. Fullness, present. It, it doesn't matter. One of the things that this has helped me understand is that there are times in my life that don't make sense simply on a prosperity level, on a green list level. When I look at them, they are difficult, traumatic, and hard. I have a rock collection. It's a small rock collection, but it reflects times in life, places, things that are 
sometimes joyful, sometimes not. This one here is Travon Bay in England, in Cornwall. This place of family, this place of joy, of rest, of relaxation. You can almost smell the salt water that's landed on this rock day after day, year after year. It's a place of joy. It's greenlist. This one is Michigan, Lake Michigan, place of learning, place of kids being born, place of family being built, place of joy. Doesn't smell of anything, no salt in Lake Michigan. It's Greenlist. This one's Colorado. It's from my home, a gift, place that God gave us. Represents a community that I love, a place that I love. It's good, it's green list. This one's New York. I don't know how you feel about New York. It's a place of trial, difficulty, loss, pain, questioning, anger. It's red list. But God was present. And one of the things that has become apparent to me is that I learn more in the red list place than I learn in the green list place. I grew more in that season than at any other season, and I am who I am today because of this place and this season of my life. The problem with us building our own future and being able to design it just as we would is we never write red list items for ourselves, right? We design our life and we say it's all green and it's all good and that's the way it should be. But any one of us who has been through anything that looks like a red list moment says, oh God, you were present and you surprised me there in a way that you never surprised me during the green times. You caught me off guard. The writer Simone Weil says this, there are only two things that pierce the human heart. One is beauty, is green list. The other is affliction, is red list. But you need both and I never write affliction into my story. I always leave it absent and yet it seems like it's a necessary part of coming to know the presence of this God. When we turn with God in prayer, as we're suggested to, as we're asked to do in Philippians chapter four, I would suggest this is what's happening. Prayer shortcuts the predicting of poverty and prosperity, which at least for me are the core of my future anxiety, and it invokes presence. It simply says, God, I'm done with predicting whether everything's going to work out. I'm done with worrying that everything's going to go terribly bad. And I'm simply going to ask you to be present with me. It pulls me out of my created futures, my impending doom or my unending success. And it lands me right here in this moment where it seems like God dwells. It's presence that brings peace. Prosperity can't give it. And poverty can't take it. When I get lost in these anxiety journeys around my hopes, my green list, and my fears, my red list, the thing that pulls me back time and time again is, God, you are present now, and you'll be present with me whichever list seems to take shape in the future. 
Have you noticed this? Whenever you go in a spiral of anxiety, worried that some particular stream of things will happen, even if it's just as innocuous as your daughter not getting the braces that she might need, have you noticed that it seems that in those moments, those imaginings, at least for me, God is rarely present with me in those negative moments. Rarely include him as present. And yet when I experience those moments in the day to day, He's always present. It seems the thing that keeps me out of anxiety is presence, not prosperity, and not poverty. And then one final thing as we close. I'm intrigued by that word presence because so often what I do is I turn presence into the ethereal presence of God, which I feel like I've experienced, which has been transformative for me. But there's something else that I recognized as I started to work through these different stones and start to ask, what was it that made it so apparent to me that God was present with me? And the answer was this. It was people just like you. It was community. It was the church for all of its negatives, for all of the ways that the church worldwide shows itself to be broken. At every stop, what I experienced was this. God was present through his people, and that's important. One of the questions that I ask regularly, whenever I get as pastor to experience or hear about someone going through a particular trauma, is this, I always ask Dan or whoever else has mentioned it, are they in a small group? Are they in a small group? Because I know if they're connected in a group, that the care that they'll get will be qualitatively better than anything we can put together as a team of staff people. There is something about life together that actually brings God's presence. And if you needed any other pitch for that than, than that for small groups, I don't have one for you. There is community that can take place in a room of a couple of hundred people. And then there's the community that takes place sitting on someone's living room in your socks and other clothing and enjoying community together. They make a difference. It matters. God makes himself present as we gather together. The writer Clarence Jordan says this, how does God add all these things to kingdom citizens? Does he rain them from the skies or provide them miraculously? Merely an answer to prayer. He says certainly not. I would say Not always. Uh, That isn't the way he does it for the lilies and the birds. They are nourished through the system to which they have committed themselves. The needs of kingdom citizens are provided through the kingdom. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, what we're praying is individual at times, but it's distinctly corporate in its language. Give us today our daily bread. Provide for us in this community, in this place. It is kingdom, 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 kingdom. It is us, 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 us. So as Aaron comes to lead us in one final song, he's going to lead us also in that Lord's Prayer. And maybe you prayed it just glibly off the top of your head the first time, but what I would invite you to do is to feel this language, to recognize how God is present through it and through people just like you. Jesus, thank you that you are present with us today. As we're learning on our journey, some of us feel like we're red list moments. Some of us feel green list. Some of us, everything we hoped is becoming true. Some of us, everything we fear seems to be coming crashing down on top of us. Wherever we are, God, thank you that you are the God that abides, who is present who meets us in trauma, in struggle, 
and in pain, who is enough, whose presence can't be created by prosperity, whose presence can't be taken away by poverty. As a community, as individuals, we look for your presence. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org give. And thanks for listening. We hope you have a great rest of your day.